You're listening to Toronto's number one real estate podcast, powered by Watson Estates. The most successful local real estate investing starts right here, right now. Here's your host, broker, investor, and social media influencer, Bradley Watson. Good morning, investors. Bradley here from Watson Estates. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. As we left off on Friday, we had nothing to say but the fact that we were in a giant bubble. Well, today, the Toronto Sun is going to try and tackle that problem and see if there's a solution that points to a greater real estate market that's being ignored by the international community. Before we get started, make sure you hit that like, subscribe button. We're going to continue to put out fantastic content. We are the largest, fast-growing podcast for Toronto real estate on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So we're going to answer these questions today. Number one, are we able to successfully counter the Swiss bank UBS claim of us here in Toronto being one of the largest bubbles in the world? And then what's a better measure of identifying a housing crisis in Toronto, if not the one that they've provided? And then to wrap this all up, are Canadian real estate buyers walking away from purchases, which would obviously point to a housing crisis? challenge or housing crisis. Well, let me tell you this before I get started. I was really hoping, I didn't want to do a podcast yesterday. I was hoping, hoping, hoping that the Toronto real estate board stats would come out this morning and that we'd be able to talk about that, right? But I'm so disappointed. It, it looks like they're actually delaying it. I don't know why we've actually seen the ones from Vancouver already come out, but it's finally giving me more of an appreciation for the disappointment that your grandpa feels when he sees your man bun. <laughs> Or how about this? The finale for the reality show about the flat earthers trying to find the edge of the world. I'll tell you this. Don't waste your time. I'll spoil it and tell you it was no cliffhanger. (laughs) And you know what they say about cliffhangers. (laughs) All right, let's jump into this, guys. I hope you're ready to have some fun. Okay, question. Are we able to counter the Swiss bank UBS claim of being the third on their list largest housing bubble in the world? All right. Well, here we go. Now, Toronto.com is going to lay out this as every there's a lot of news articles talking about this publication or this report. Well, now Toronto.com is the winner because theirs rose to the surface. So I'm going to just use their article as a brief highlight, a reminder, if you missed our podcast on Friday, Toronto real estate is sitting on a high risk bubble, says a report. Here's some of the highlights. We know the CMHC spring outlook suggested that we could bottom out in prices in Toronto to 739,000 in 2021. And a recent report from Moody's made an even more conservative prediction that Toronto home prices could fall 9% next year. Well, we've been tracking that as well. And the Canadian government and banks are delaying the COVID-19 impact with low mortgage rates, deferrals, financial assistance via CERB and other programs. But the UBS report argues that a decline in the rental market and the rapid inflation of prices from the previous dozen years are reasons to expect a correction. The rising Canadian dollar will also disincentivize foreign investment. But the hot Toronto real estate market repeatedly shrugs off the sky is falling concerns. So there's a little bit of a highlight. We were on the top. We're at the top of the list. Go back and listen to that podcast if you missed it. But we've got a lot of doom and gloom, right? The sky is falling. The cliff is falling. (laughs) Falling into space, right? Or do they not? I guess flat earthers don't believe in space either. I don't know. Okay. So uprises our chief contender. Ready to tackle it. Taking that front spot on the local news when you look up Toronto real estate. Braun. It's an opinion piece. Hate to burst your bubble, but real estate Still strong. 
Let's see how they do. COVID and a hot real estate market have put Toronto in a double bubble. This is the only city in North America where houses are deemed to be so overpriced, they're in a housing bubble. Third year in a row, Toronto real estate has been flagged as overpriced. The bubble designation comes courtesy of Swishbank UBS in its annual roundup of 25 cities around the world and where we've beaten, I don't know if this is a good thing to say, but we beat cities like London, New York, Hong Kong for super expensive real estate. And this is based on local rents and incomes. Okay, here's key. So this is what they say. Globally, Toronto is consistently chosen as one of the best places to live. The city is a manageable size. The schools are good. It's comparably, comparatively safe here. And the Canadian banking system is solid. If I could just add, I saw Daniel uh, Falk on Twitter, F-O-C-H. <laughs> how, how terrible a name when someone has, always has to clarify your name. <laughs> Imagine is that you're listening to Watson Estates. That's W-A-T-S-O-N Estates. <laughs> Well, here's what he said. To put Toronto's 127,000 person population increase last year in a global context, Delhi has added an average of 730,000 new residents per year over the last 20 years. So Toronto is spanking, like that disappointed parent of yours, <laughs> is spanking the world the major cities of the world. Well, what's causing this trend? What's the movement and why do we see such inflation in smaller communities? Well, number one, we got younger buyers or I guess mid-sized buyers, right? And it's prompted, they say, others to flee the city for smaller communities in Ontario, such as Flesherton, Thornberry or Collingwood, where there's way more bang for your real estate buck and a good environment in which to raise kids. But the, the problem is the double problem is you got seniors too, right? We got, they say space concerns have caused older buyers to put their downsizing plans on hold. Maybe now when your garden offers peaceful space for socially distanced entertaining is not the time to shrink everything into a 600 square foot condo. I haven't seen a ton of stats of seniors running to condo living. It was always an idea, but even pre-COVID, I never really saw that as a general trend. It seems to be mostly investors or international people moving into our city that seem to buy up those properties. But if that's the case, the other thing I've noticed that, that uh, apart from this argument here, that the older buyers, they weren't really down. They weren't moving. Like they weren't, they didn't want to downsize, I guess, or they didn't want to go into homes and sell the inventory, which causes this other problem. And we've talked about that in the past too. So you've got these generational conflicts, but every sign right now, regardless of what happened pre-COVID is now saying, screw the city. I'm going where I can grow some plants, right? Well, we got Boris Kolodov, an agent with Royal LePage says this, he sees a softening in the condo market and attributes part of that to first-time buyers not purchasing right now. A statement from Royal LePage says the luxury condo market has softened down a tad in Toronto at 1.6. This is luxury condos, guys. Down in Toronto, 1.6 and in GTA 3.6, which could mean more choice for those intending in a high-end condo. So there's an opportunity for you as well. He knows people are leaving Toronto, but it's not necessarily to leave the city just because you're working from home. The city's attractiveness is not going to go away. Toronto doesn't exist just to house office workers. This is the big debate. And the quote that they got, the best quote I think I've heard of this season is from Brad Lamb. Here's what he said. We talked about this in our past podcast, but I'm going to say it again because it's great. It's a short-term reaction to a short-term problem. People thinking this is the new normal way of life will get stuck in the suburbs, get priced out and be miserable because they're going to have a two-hour commute with all the other idiots that moved to the 905 when they didn't have to. <laughs> 
That's so good. That'll go down. That's like the quote of the decade, especially if we have a huge bounce back. It comes back into the city, right? The gutting of Airbnb as COVID kills tourism and the lack of students in our city means, yes, there's a glut of small units in downtown. They say, but this, but good buildings in the right location with great outdoor space will do fine and boutique buildings are doing very well. So if this article, remember where we came from, what this article was seeking to do was to try and convince us that we're not in a housing bubble, but what all it did is pointed to additional problems. So this article, in my opinion, was a very weak response and it definitely didn't counter the bubble conclusion. In fact, in some ways it actually strengthened it. And in trying to argue against a bubble, the Toronto Sun has successfully fulfilled the three steps to disappointing your audience. Number one, overpromise. Number two, underdeliver. <laughs> okay, here we go. So let's see if we can come up with a better way. All right, we're gonna have some fun here. What's a better measure of identifying a housing crisis in Toronto? Well, I saw this article from, this is a great title for a website doodles.mountainmath.ca <laughs> it's like bradley how do you find these i don't know i don't know they find me <laughs> the article is called first time buyer lorenz curves okay so they've got these guys and they're kind of studying what's a better way to figure out affordability and, and to calculate if we actually are in affordability crisis. Well, here's what they say. As we've argued on this blog time and time again, our housing crisis is ultimately a crisis for renters. Mean and Whitehead, which is a book they kind of talk about at the beginning of this article, take this view as well and argue the best metrics for housing affordability should be based on renters, specifically the affordability of renting and the ability for renters to access home ownership. So here's what they say. There are issues... Remember, we were talking about UBS comparing price, the amount of income you get versus the affordability. Well, they say there's issues with price to income, okay? The most widely reported income metric on affordability is price to income ratio, usually reported as a mean or a median multiple of market prices of all housing types to typically household income of all households, regardless of tenure. So we just take this big fat number and it's super easy to calculate, right? This is how much money you make. This is how much it costs. And there's our price to income ratio. Well, price to income ratio is an attractive measure because it's easy to compute. Data to produce it is readily available and it's easy to understand, but it suffers from a slew of problems, some of which were discussed here before. Mean and Whitehead conclude, this is what they say. We are highly critical of the simplest, the house price to earnings or income ratio. Despite the fact that it is the most widely used and is built into land use planning policies, the ratio provides no information on the distribution of outcomes across household types and income levels. It can be misleading as an indicator of changes in affordability over time, even at the aggregate level. And it is worrying that it is still widely used. I think this is already better than the Toronto Sun argument. And they go on to talk about all these different things, but what is this Lorenz curve? I'm going to summarize it for you for simplicity and time's sake. It says, to better understand the issues, first-time buyers face mean and white, whitehead employ the Lorenz curve. This is their alternate concept, this alternate theory they call the Lorenz curve. You can Google it, look it up. You'll probably find this article. This is trying to understand the question, what proportion of potential first-time buyers can afford what proportion of the housing stock? So we're not just dealing with, this is all overall money. This is the overall price. And therefore we're comparing us against London, right? What it does, it's very cool. So they've got this kind of little chart and it's literally just like, it goes from 0%, which is your balance of the house value 
And it's got, and on one side, that's your y-axis. On the x-axis, you've got your income percentile of first-time home buyers, and it's just a straight line. And it's like, think about it. If I were to explain this, if you're in the bottom 10% percentile of gender of making money, your income, then you should be able to afford a house in the bottom 10th percentile. Does that make sense? So the idea is, as you move up this curve of employment and you're at, you're in that top 90 percentile, you should be on the 90 percentile as far as what you can afford. Well, what they then do is they take this, this zero to 100 line and they map out individual cities on how they land. And the ones that are the most concerning, namely Toronto and Vancouver, when we look at a macro perspective, they look almost like a, like a bow and arrow. Like you've got that straight line, but you have such low affordability for all levels, all the way up all the way up. Whereas when we look at places like Montreal, Calgary, Edmonton, they kind of balance and float around this line. In most cases, it's the lower income get hit the hardest. But in cases like Toronto and Vancouver, it would seem as though we are all screwed. We're all screwed. And it's not just there. Like they talk about here, we've got, what are some of these cities? You got Hamilton, looks similar, right? Victoria, Oshawa, very similar. And so these cities, Windsor actually looks great right along that line. I Check this. If you guys have some time and you're looking, depending on what city you're on now, they don't have everything, but we've got like Guelph and Brantford and we got London is in here. You can go check Cambridge. You can go check these out. See what your cities, the ones you're invested in, how they map out on this Lorenz curve. And the Lorenz curve, all the, the point of this, it seeks to understand how difficult is the affordability at each income level, depending on where you are. I think it's great. And if anything, unfortunately, it does point to the fact that Toronto looks not so good, but it also tells me maybe this isn't just a low income or mid income problem. This would seem to be a problem for everybody. But then the counter argument is real estate is a huge generator of wealth. And if you're not in that market, regardless of the affordability, you've definitely missed out on all the return potential you could have experienced in the last 10 years. There's a huge debate wherever you stand. You got some legitimate arguments right there behind you. But apparently it's not just the poor struggling to afford home. It's all of us. Our city at this point just needs some Jesus. <laughs> it's not too late. Book your tickets online for this Sunday. I hear the uh, Church of Fake Laser Sounds has a seating shortage. So uh, get them fast. They really need more pews. <laughs> That's probably my favorite joke. So if you don't like it, just <laughs> tune me out now. All right, we're going to move along here. So given all of these things, given this Lorenz curve, what are some of the big banks saying? Well, RBC Economics forecasts a drop in condo prices in major markets in 2021. Outside the fact that we have a, uh, see, we have success in our real estate market. If you look at it from a, a whole, like from the entire perspective, however, there is no question that condos are the outlier. They're the ones getting spanked. For hopeful home buyers next year, maybe a good time. This article says straight.com. If it's a condo in big markets like Vancouver, Toronto, that they're looking for, 2021 could be their lucky year. A recent RBC Economics report forecasts a softening of condo prices in major residential markets. They say this, the economist from RBC, quote, the bottom line is we expect condo prices to weaken in larger markets next year. How about that? Moreover, the growing penchant for single detached homes is supporting stronger price increases in that category. In his latest report on September 30th, he wrote the impact of COVID-19 is on the housing market is complex and it led to a diverging price trends among regions and housing categories. And we feel that. The funny thing is, is this is not new. Like we've seen this disconnect between low rise and condos pre-COVID. 
It just was the opposite. It seemed to be favoring the condos. And pre-2017 speculation tax, we had it too. There was this huge divergence, this huge confusion of why would you even own a condo? You could have held a condo for five years and with all the fees to sell it, made no money at all. Yet detached homes were exploding in value. Maybe this is just a flip switch. And will that switch flip back? Who knows? But everyone, if you remember, was panicking over CERB. They were panicking over the mortgage deferrals. Not to say these aren't things we got to be paying attention to, but what did we say here at Watson Estates was the biggest pain point that we were looking out for? And when I say we, I mean myself and I. Well, we were thinking about rental evictions and Airbnb, but really the rental space, right? That could have a serious issue. So how does that proof pudding taste, friends? <laughs> All right. Globalnews.com, tenant requests for help spike after Ontario lifts moratorium on evictions. I won't jump into this too much, but just speaking to this issue, this was a London article, came out of London, Ontario. Craig Cooper, manager of homeless prevention for the city of London speaking, says they're getting an increase in requests for help. Well, there are real issues for some tenants, right? But some of them, <laughs> you'll remember, were just playing stupid games and now they're caught. They must have been using the Wii U. <laughs> oh, come on. Those are the dumbest ones I can think of. What about you? You agree, right? <laughs> it was clear Nintendo needed to make a switch. <laughs> Quote, this is simultaneously shifting demand from condo apartments to single detached homes and other low-rise categories. The increasing the supply of smaller condos is co in core urban areas. Because it's not just a problem of lack of demand. It's also a problem of supply. According to, this is a Toronto Stories article, Toronto continues to have the most cranes of any city in Canada or the USA. If you didn't see this article, that's okay. There's too many to keep track of, but you definitely want to know about this one. According to international property and construction consultancy firm, Ryder Levette Bucknell's Q3 2020 North American Crane Index. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Oh, I manage the North American Crane Index. <laughs> there are currently 124 cranes erected across the city, catapulting Toronto into a league of its own for active crane counts on the continent. Toronto's crane count has increased since the last survey as three more cranes have been erected in the months that followed. Here's the numbers. We make up in Toronto, 29% of the total cranes of North America. Guess who's second place? It's Seattle. And they have they have 12%. It's, an un, it's a whole other level, guys. A whole other level. And this is not new. We've had an unbelievable number of cranes for the past years. It's just we've had a tightness of supply that apparently ceases to exist in the condo space these days. And so now we're caught. And this is obviously the combo, right? Once you combine the declining demand and the boosting supply of new condos, you can better understand the gravity of the situation. Hey, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe gravity itself is the disappointment. <laughs> Flat earthers, it always lets me down. And the advice some give is right now, given this, is you can get a deal in the condo space. But my opinion, similar to RBC here, is I don't think it's a good timing yet. That's my opinion. But if you want to get a deal, absolutely, there's deals for you. But we know, we won't fully know until Treb decides <laughs> that it's the time. This is the moment to flood the news with our September stats. All right, I'm not going to leave you guys hanging too much. We're going to talk a little bit about September stats because yes, Treb, which is the, the, the core one you want to get these stats from hasn't released their info, which we will dive into deep when they do. That doesn't mean we don't have some insider info on the market stats. So according to Realosophy, they recently said the top line number for the Toronto real estate market in September was an average sale price of 972000 That is the GTA, sorry. 
And that is an increase of 15% year over year and an increase in sales of 39% a month of inventory at 1.7%. That's hot. That is one hot market. If you look in Halton, sales growth is up 73%. York up 50%. Durham 55% and Peel 45%. Did you expect anything less after the last few years of heat that we've experienced? Speaking of heat, congrats, Heat. You won the basketball game yesterday night. <laughs> Number of sales flat month to month. So as I was kind of looking at some of the, the trends here, I was expecting a bit of a downward trend. But when, when you look at the last few years, it seems to line up that you would have flat month over month sales. Because we look year over year, sales are up 39%. But that's not a true indication because obviously we've seen huge boosts in the last year. But when you look month over month, it's actually quite flat. And this is not unusual. In fact, normally we see a drop off in the number of sales going into September or November, sorry. So we'll watch for that. But as I have said, and a lot of people would have possibly disagreed with, if you were to disagree, is that I would not be surprised if we saw price appreciation through the winter months, which is very unusual, very unusual seasonally. Well, Going into September anyways, this is the case. Prices are up from 958,000 to now the 972,000. But of course, we'll do more in-depth review when the TREB gets their act together. The TREB stats is really the best ruler for us to use. Thus, my disappointment is immeasurable. <laughs> are you guys getting sick of my disappointment jokes yet? I know. Go easy on me, right? I bought a self-help DVD on dealing with my disappointment, but uh, when I opened it, the box was empty. What do you know? <laughs> All right, let's talk briefly about the economy. We're, we're diving deep into these hot topics today. I didn't really announce we're doing it, but you can probably feel that right now. Economy. Today's GDP data plus preliminary estimates for August suggest Canada's economy has recovered roughly two-thirds of the COVID drop, and it remains 6% below the trend. So for anyone who says we're fully recovered, eh, for anyone who says we're still at the bottom, eh, two-thirds. Two thirds, folks. Now, I got an email this morning as I was actually putting this podcast together that speaks to this idea of delays by lenders. I find this interesting. I, I get periodic messages and e-newsletters that I've accidentally subscribed to in the past. And they say this, in the past, a mortgage transaction would typically close in three to four weeks. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, some deals are taking much longer than that. In the past few months, this individual has said, I have had deals that have taken six weeks to close. And so he says, I would like to advise you to tell your clients to start the refinance process at least six weeks before you need the money and also make your closing dates at least six weeks away on any purchases. These aren't just the little guys. They're talking about the primarily A lenders are taking longer than usual. The reason that they're saying is because they're understaffed at the moment. They're busy. <laughs> All right, CP24. I want to do a little bit about COVID. Ontario sending staff to help Toronto Public Health after unit suspends individual contact tracing. Well, it turns out that the Toronto Public Health can't stand on its own two feet anymore. You know it has four legs and is full of disappointment? Toronto's parents. <laughs> Don't worry, Papa Ford got you. He'll save you. And so they're going to be sending, they're going to be dispatching 200 additional staff to help with this contact tracing efforts, which they pretty much stopped doing in settings like schools and long-term care homes and hospitals because they just couldn't keep up. So hopefully you got a track on that. But clearly COVID is taking off. In fact, 44% of Toronto's outbreaks linked to restaurants, bars, and entertainment venues, according to dailyhive.com. And those are big numbers. Eileen De Silva, who is the medical officer of health for the city, says that Socializing in bars and restaurants is contributing to significant exposures and outbreaks like in Young Street Warehouse, which created 1,700 exposures. Guys, 
Would it be any surprise if we had further closures? I don't think so. I mean, even the CN Tower right now is closed. So I expect that this will continue. Okay, let's move right along. We're going to go into our last topic. We're going to talk with our friends, betterdwelling.com. Are Canadian real estate buyers walking away from purchases? Because if they were, that'd be sure bad, no? (laughs) And based on the fact that the article says Canadian real estate buyers trying to walk away from purchases become rampant, (laughs) it can't be good, right? (laughs) I love Better Dwelling. Fill my life up with so much joy. Canadian real estate buyers are starting to go sellers after making offers. Let's figure this out. An unusual uptick of buyers are not delivering their deposit checks. Generally speaking, not in every case, but generally, the deposit check on a residential purchase goes within 24 hours to the office of the listing brokerage. So if these guys are ghosting them within 24 hours, something is up. Something's up. It's not like within 24 hours, they've realized the real estate market is tanking. No, no, no. And they explain it in this article clear as day in a piece penned for REM, a real estate industry magazine. The broker claims he is seeing a, quote, disturbing trend. His brokerage alone has seen nearly 30 of these cases last month. He also notes he's heard other Toronto brokers observing a small, a similar trend. He also suspects this is a more widespread issue. So what is happening? What's happening? Like, are they getting freaked out and running all of a sudden? Oh, why did I didn't mean to do that? Oops. And these aren't just any offers, by the way. These are some, many of which are without conditions. I mean, you're going to an offer presentation. I had one the other day where it was a house we didn't even want. <laughs> we didn't even want to go on this house. This is out in Milton. 13 offers on a townhouse. Are you kidding me? We're waiting for our offer presentation on another property that's coming in the next couple days. But holy smoke, there's like, that's what my mother-in-law says all the time. My, my mother-in-law is, half, she's actually from Vietnam. She's Cantonese. She says, holy smoke. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's likely more than one reason this happens, but the broker believes this is a result of multiple offers. He speculates buyers might be placing offers on more than one place just in case they don't get the first one. Oh, I get it. So you're not walking away because the market's crashing. You're walking away because you're stupid. (laughs) Buyers sometimes on a bad advice of an agent. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely the agents. Place an offer on more than one house thinking they can walk away. That's good advice. That's smart, smart moves. Sellers can and do sue buyers if they fail to resell at a higher price without a valid reason for walking away from the contract, especially if it's firm. This number can be a lot more than the deposit. They go and talk about a story in BC, but have you guys, would you guys be surprised to hear that people have been sued for $360,000 or $470,000? I wouldn't, I wouldn't. They were happening all the time. It's not like multiple offers is a new scenario here in Toronto. What well, is this have anything to do with COVID? No, it's just sheer stupidity. This article, though, does point to a valid issue. It does. Realtors, make sure you're educating your clients properly. I know you guys are smart and you're not doing that, right? But I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting for positive news from Better Dwelling. I've been waiting for a crash. These guys have been waiting all year. <laughs> and after a disappointing late summer, Humpty Dumpty is really hoping for a great fall. And just a quick story I thought I'd leave you with just for fun. I, I've been wait, waiting for an opportunity to place this and, and this idea of multiple offers. I thought this is a good, this is a good time. So I had a property closed a couple months back and we went into a multiple offer situation. It was us and one others on a, on a condo in Mississauga. Funny enough, we probably made a hundred thousand on that condo at the timing of the purchase because we waited until COVID kind of got its full effect and jumped in. But anyways, we, th- there is a form that we as realtors fill out called a form 801. Any of you real estate professionals know that it's to protect buyers in the event of multiple offers. So you can say, Hey, how many offers did you get? Send me the 801s. And this is a new program. It's a great idea. 
Well, in this case, the other buyer didn't have a Form 801. So let this be a lesson to you to send one. And so I said to the seller, well, can you send me the first page of the offer? Just black out the names and the details and send it so I get proof for my client. Well, they shouldn't have blacked it out electronically. Because I know people (laughs) and people, meaning my clients, knew the price of the other offer and needless to say, we won. They got a great deal. And after all is said and done, you guys got to be careful. Be careful. Use your 801s. Follow things by the rules. Make sure you're protecting your clients and make sure you guys aren't being stupid. Get connected with people that know what they're doing. And every so often a fun story that in this case led to a positive result for myself and hopefully the other guy's not listening. (laughs) Not that anybody would ever know. All right, I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm just still kind of thinking, what am I going to do for Halloween? Is Halloween even a thing? I don't know. But I got to come up with a costume. So uh, after all is said and done, I think I've decided this year for Halloween, assuming we can wear costumes, I am going as a massive disappointment. (laughs) I know, I know. It's what I've been for the past few years, but hey, it's what fits. (laughs) I'm going to leave it there. I'll see you guys next time with more. Take care and keep it real. Thank you.